0: So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, we're going to start reading in verse 18. Um, As as we begin in Genesis 2.18, I want to remind you we've been working through the book of Genesis and talking, um, particularly in chapter 2, about the way in which Adam is related to different um, things. So how he's related to the plants of the field, how he's related to the place that God has put him in the garden, how he's related to God how, And today we see a lot about how he's related to the animals And most expressly to his wife So we're looking at that, verse 18, Genesis two eighteen through 25 Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for what you have written at the hand of Moses by your spirit for the sake of your church. We pray that Christ would um, speak to us again as we um, consider this passage, as we consider the creation um, of the woman and of the marriage covenant, and the necessity of that for Adam. We pray as well that your spirit would give us ears to hear, even as we see and hear about the mystery of the gospel in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to turn to the topic of man and his creation, or being created for marriage. Uh, it's interesting that the whole account of the creation climaxes um, with the marriage covenant of Adam and Eve it's, it's actually a bit um, it sort of takes your breath away as you're reading through Genesis 1 and 2 that the thing God chooses to close the entire creation account with is the marriage covenant it's the marriage covenant and you might wonder why marriage is highlighted like this why does uh, the Lord spend it, really a significant portion of the creation account on the marriage covenant with Adam and Eve, um, on Adam receiving a wife. How is the woman and the marriage covenant really connected to the story of creation that's being told? The answer is, that the, the short answer anyways, is that the man cannot fulfill his purpose without the woman. He can't fulfill the purpose that God has given him without marriage. And I, I'm hoping that today we'll see how the woman and marriage are connected to man's original purpose. And, uh, and we'll do that by looking at Genesis 2, 18-25. Now as we do, I want to consider um, two major points. The first major point is the necessity of the woman and marriage for Adam to fulfill his purpose. So the, the necessity of the woman and marriage for Adam to fulfill his purpose. And the second major point is how marriage mysteriously reveals the gospel. So this marriage covenant mysteriously reveals the gospel. So let's look first at the necessity of the woman and marriage for Adam to fulfill his purpose. And here's the question I'm asking at this point. And and I want us to grab hold of. Why is it necessary for Adam to be given a woman to marry to fulfill his purpose? Why is that necessary? Look at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good that the man should be alone is a startling statement because when we went through Genesis 1, at the end of day 1, God said it is very good. At the end of day 2, or God said it's good. At the end of day 2, God said it's good. At the end of day 3, it's good. At the end of day 4, it's good. By the time you get to the end of day 6, the creation of man and woman, it is very good as he completes the whole of creation and so after hearing it's good it's good it's good and it's very good now now tell something is not good it's not good it's a, it's narratively meant to capture your attention to grab hold of you as you're reading oh something's not good how can that be in God's original creation um, it, it might be important though to say what not good doesn't mean Not good is not a statement about a lack of moral goodness. It's not a statement about immorality. Not good is not a statement about God's failure. It's a statement about incompleteness or imperfection of creation apart from Adam's wife or the woman. In other words, if you remember, this is really taking place on day six. And if you remember the creation account, we start off hearing the creation account is in an embryonic form. It's in an incomplete form, in an immature form. And as the creation account goes along in the six days, you get to the point where God finishes it and it's complete. And until the woman is completed, it's not good. God was not yet finished. And that that leads to my question about the necessity of Adam's marriage. Why is it necessary that Adam receive a wife to fulfill his purpose? Well, because God created Adam with that necessity. Maybe that's the the clearest way to say it. Um, I'm not sure if we would make that argument philosophically, but we have to make it biblically. God created Adam with the necessity uh, for a wife. Now, we would make that argument philosophically if we were just considering man's biology. But I suppose God could have made a a, a creature that didn't have uh, the need to reproduce in some way. But that's not the kind of creature God created when he created man. He created the kind of creature who has the necessity of the woman. Adam, as a singular man, could not accomplish his purpose. He was not by himself. And this is really something you get a hold of, especially as we go through the whole of Scripture. Adam was not by himself the full expression of the image of God. Not by himself the full expression of the image of God. Hermann Bovink, Dutch Reformed scholar, said this, Only humanity in its entirety... As one complete organism, summed up under a single head, a federal head. And we talked about that in the sermon last week, about the federal head. Summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth, as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole of creation. Only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. Adam was made to be the federal head of a people, of a people. And that whole people together spread across the earth as prophet telling the truth about God, as priest serving and worshiping God, as king exercising dominion over the earth on God's behalf. Only that whole people is, is the full expression of the image of God. Adam could not produce such a people by himself. That's manifestly obvious to all of us. He could not do that. He was not able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it by himself. Further, it's not just about procreation. Adam was created to be a communal or social being. He was created to relate to others like himself. And he could not do that by himself. Thus, Adam had a need. Look at Genesis 2.18 and the last part of it. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. Last phrase, I will make him a helper fit for him. God is creating a helper fit for him. We see that repeated again at the end of 2.20. Look at the last phrase of Genesis 2.20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. None of the animals is a helper fit for him. So I want to press on two aspects of that phrase. When you say that, see that phrase a helper fit for him I want to press first on this notion of what is a helper And second on the notion of fit for him What is a helper and what is fit for him So let's look first at the word helper It's important that we know the language helper is used of God He's called our helper In Deuteronomy 33.7 he's called our helper In Psalm 33.20 God is called our helper in Psalm one twenty one one through two, he's called our helper. Um, so, it, in some cases, when the word helper is used, the helper is actually stronger than the one being helped. In the case of God, He's stronger than the one helping us. In other cases, the helper is not stronger than the one being helped. Uh, helping does not someone does not imply you're stronger than the one you're helping, nor that the other party is weaker. Um, I help Teresa. And Teresa helps me. So what's the point of the language of helper? The point is that Adam is inadequate, incomplete, incapable to fulfill his purpose without Eve. He's not able to do it. He needs a helper to fulfill his purpose. The point is really that um, something more than Adam just having a kind of emotional incompleteness he, he doesn't just, he, he does have an emotional incompleteness. Don't get me wrong, but that's not the whole of the issue. Um, it's far more fundamental than that. To understand that, look back at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he needs a helper who's fit for him. He needs someone to come alongside of him, uh, just like the rest of us do but he needs someone that's fit for him um, this language of the woman being fit for the man's interesting uh, it is that she corresponds to him Mo- most of your bibles you probably mostly have the esv i'm assuming um, have that in the marginal footnote corresponds to him uh, it's really a better translation um, it's it, it means that she matches him uh, but Uh, Gordon Wenham, a great Old Testament scholar, actually points out that because of the structure of the grammar, the syntax, uh, we ought to really strictly translate it like opposite him. I will create a helper like opposite him. It has to do with her being a, a compliment to him. And when I say a compliment, I don't mean like someone pays you a compliment. I mean someone who is your opposite, who is your fit. Um, Matthew Poole explains it this way Puritan author uh, here's what he says one correspondent to him suitable both to his nature and necessity one altogether like him in shape and constitution disposition and affection a second self one to be at hand and near to him to stand continually before him familiarly to converse with him to be always ready to care for, serve, and comfort him, one whose eye respect and care as well as desire should be to him, whose business it shall be to please and help him. So Adam and Eve are of the same kind, of the same na- nature. Eve was not made of a lower substance. She was made for man. She's not a lower form of humanity. She is as truly human as Adam. She is an image bearer. Really, a human being, just like Adam is, body and soul, rational and moral. Further, she's his complement, or his like, she's his like opposite. She's the opposite to him. She is what no animal could be. She's what no animal could be. The sense here is that Adam's found his natural equal, his, his helper, his sexual complement, his friend. It's with her that man will procreate and it's with her that he will live well in society as he was created to live. Uh, but there's also some narrative tension that gets created here because when God decrees, I will make him a helper fit for him. Then God brings the animals out in front of him. And we have this parade of animals and we start asking the question, why after declaring what he declares in verse 18, does he do what he does? in verse 19 and 20. So look there. Again, notice the flow of the text. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now you hear this language about the relationship between Adam and the animals. And now notice what it says. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam is exercising his authority or dominion over them and naming them. He's exercising the rationality that a human being has and be able to recognize an animal and give it a name that corresponds to that animal. And he's naming the kinds of animal in the animal kingdom in the Semitic mind. So I've told you guys before, you'll see it it in Genesis 1, you're going to see it again on the ark, that there are three kinds of animals. Uh, There are domestic animals, there are wild animals, and they are the animals that are close to the ground, like reptiles, etc. So we see that laid out here as well. If you notice what it says, verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, those are the domesticated animals, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, wild animals. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the animals are brought out in front of him after this not good declaration and a declaration that God's gonna make a helper fit for him. Now the animals are brought in front of him. And what, what what's being told to you here narratively is Adam is is going through a long object lesson. As every animal's brought in front of him, and they all have their compliments. They have their pairs, but he doesn't have his. And he doesn't fit with any of them. And it's like the Lord is playing out for us narratively. The tension that's growing in Adam's own heart and mind like where's my like opposite where's my compliment where's my helper they each have compliments but he has none none are fit to be his helper that's the last phrase in verse 20 and there was not found a helper fit for him they are not human beings they are not body and soul bearing God's image when I say body and soul yes they have bodies, and yes, in the sense that we call them animals, and the animal is the Latin word for soul, they have souls, but they don't have rational, immortal souls. They don't have true righteousness and holiness, etc. cetera. Um, they are not his like opposite, his correspondent, his complement. Then God creates a helper fit for him. So I want to look at Eve's creation from verse 21 really through 22, Um, And we'll just carry on down as we we think about four aspects of of Eve's creation. Four aspects of Eve's creation. First, the first aspect of Eve's creation is that she she was from man. She was from man, made from his rib or more accurately his side. Look at Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs or punctured his side, opened up his side, and closed up its place with with flesh or with flesh. This is a kind of operation that happens on Adam during a deep sleep that is painless for him. It doesn't leave a scar. Somehow the the rib cage or the side is opened up and out of the side of Adam is created his wife or the woman. This points to her being as truly human as Adam is. She's as truly human as Adam is. She's not made like other cre- from other creatures. Um, we might even wonder what sort of creature she was if Adam was from the ground and then independently she was also from the ground. Uh, but she's made from his own body so that we know she's the same kind of creature he is. It, but it doesn't just point out to the fact that she's truly human as, at, as truly human as Adam is. It points to her vocation as the one who serves as Adam's helper. Here's how Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Here's what he says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now he's going to go on, by the way, later in 1 Corinthians 11 to say, and now men are born from women (laughs) right now. But he's talking about the original creation. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So she is from him and she is For him, And I think Matthew Henry, one of the Puritan writers, comes closest to the spirit of the text. This isn't a a translation or something like that. He's just commenting. And I think his comment on the text is about as, as helpful a comment as there is. He says this, The woman was not made out of his head to top him or to rule him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So this speaks of the first aspect of Eve's creation. The second aspect of Eve's creation is that she's the gift of God to Adam. God gives her to Adam as a gift. Look at Genesis 2, 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Adam is wholly passive here. You notice that in the creation of his wife? He's entirely passive. God is doing this thing. God brings the woman to Adam and gives him to her like a father who who walks a bride down the aisle to give her away. The Lord kindly gives this gift of a wife to Adam. This woman is from Adam and for Adam. And as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, she is his glory. The wife is the glory of her husband. It's not incidental that God made a woman. Um, It's it's sad that we have to emphasize this in our culture, (laughs) but but it's it's not a it's not a small fact. A woman is his complement. A woman is complement. It is only with a woman that he can fulfill his vocation, and it's only with a man that she can fulfill her vocation. It's only with a woman that he can be fruitful and multiply. Another man or male is not Adam's complement. Further, God gives Adam one woman. God doesn't give Adam a multitude of women. One woman is his complement. An animal is not Adam's complement. That, that's one of the major points of the passage. Um, and, and will be one of the things behind the for forbidding of bestiality. An adult woman is Adam's complement because a physically immature girl is not Adam's complement, right? An adult woman, one mature biological female is Adam's complement. That's fairly obvious to us, um, but it's not something emphasized, sadly, enough by us. The third aspect of Eve's creation is that Adam immediately recognized that she filled his need. Look at Genesis 2:23. Genesis 2:23. Then the man said, "This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." The poem here begins and ends with the emphasis on the woman. It contrasts with Adam's surveying of the animals. So he surveyed the animals, he named them. And now he's going to name his wife, exercising a kind of authority over his own wife as he names her. But he's going to name her in a way that he points all the attention of the reader or the hearer of the text to her. So everybody's paying attention to her. His exclamation begins. We see it here in our text. This this at last, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, um, which is... Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is their way in the Jewish world of saying um, my blood relative. Like we say that person's my blood. That's how they would say it. So you'll see that later, for example, in Genesis. They'll refer to their blood relatives as flesh and bone. And that's what he's saying about his wife. She's my blood. This is, this is my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But what's interesting is his exclamation uh, begins this way. This. This one. Now we we read it, this at last. And that's fine as we're trying to kind of pick up the idea of an exclamation. But in the Hebrew, very literally it is, this, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one as opposed to those other ones, those animals that were brought in front of me. That's the contrast. Those ones aren't. This, this one, or this at last. Right? And all those animals were not. This one is. This one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman, Isha. Isha. For from man, Ish, was taken this. That's how it begins with this and ends with this. You can really see Adam pointing at her almost this, this one, and then at the end, this. Like, here she is. Not those animals, her. Gordon Wenham helpfully explains this. He says this, in these five short lines, many of the standard techniques of Hebrew poetry are employed. Parallelism, assonance and wordplay, chiasmus, and verbal repetition. By opening with this and then by concluding with the same word, the man's exclamation concentrates all eyes on this woman. Adam's rejoicing in her. That's what's happening. He's rejoicing in her. He sees that she corresponds to him. She's perfectly matched as his complement. So I, I want you to think of the picture. God, like the father of the bride, leads the woman to Adam and gives her to him. Gives her to him. Adam sees his wife and he breaks into poetry. It's, it's something like a song, actually, the way that it plays out, this poem. It's, it's almost as if Adam begins to sing. I only think about that. It's, if you will, your first song or poem in all of Scripture. You're, you're, you're walking through the creation account. You get to the creation of the woman, and the man starts to sing, right, for the first time. It's like, here she is. Every wedding I officiate, I, I'm thankful for the vantage point I have as a pastor because, because um, you guys don't get to do this when you're not officiating the wedding, but I do. Uh, you get some vantage point, but not quite as good as mine, uh, where I get to look right at the groom's face as the bride's coming down. I can see both of them in my, in my vision. So everybody stands up and turns and looks at the bride and says, look how beautiful she is. Um, and, and the father of the bride is bringing her down to give her to the groom. And everybody's looking at her um, and her glory. And you can see the groom. I mean, you can see in his eyes, in his face. You can see him um, wanting to break out in song, pretty much. Like, you can see the poetry starting to flow for this man as he sees this woman walking down. You can almost hear him saying, she is my glory. This, this one at last. I can see the song in his eyes every time. She's my complement. She's my helper. She completes me in the truest sense. The fourth aspect of the creation of Eve is that um, it's in a, he's in a covenant with Adam She's in a covenant, sorry. She's in a covenant with Adam as his wife. She's in a covenant with Adam as his wife. Look at verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the language of a close union, a covenantal bond. Here's how Malachi comments on the marriage covenant. He says, "Did in Malachi 2:15, did He God not make them the husband and wife one with a portion of their spirit in the, of the spirit in their union? So when the marriage vows are taken at a wedding ceremony, the Holy Spirit is present, making those two people one by covenant. This also speaks to the language of, of intimacy or unabashed joy." They're both naked and they're not ashamed. Uh, in other words, what you're being, what's being emphasized is there's a, an innocence, a cleanness, a sanctity, a holiness to the scene as they're there together. There's no shame because there need not be any because there is no sin. There is no sin. But, but what is the language that comes up here of, therefore a man shall leave, that word leave, his father and mother, And in the ESV, we say hold fast. If you remember the old King James says cleave, leave and cleave or hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It literally means that he forsakes his father and mother and sticks to his wife. Um, Jewish men did not leave their father's homes in this period. Actually, as we go through Genesis, you'll see that the Jewish men will get a wife and literally bring his wife into his father's home and he will raise her or care for her and raise children with her there in the father's home and be a part of the family business if you will Um, so it's not about a change of location right the woman would change locations because she would leave her father's home Um, that's why often uh, the woman's family was given some kind of a dowry or payment because they're losing a resource that helps them eat and be cared for, right? The father's house is picking one up, if you will, or the groom's house is picking one up. Um, it, so it's not a change of location that's being discussed here. It's, it's a change of allegiance. It's really saying that while the man is still obviously expected to keep the fifth commandment to honor his father and mother, as is the woman, expected to keep the fifth commandment to honor their father and mother, his wife takes priority. So, that if your honoring of your father and mother ends up being the dishonoring of your spouse, you're not doing it right. Your priorities are out of order. Um, you're to say that, see your spouse as your closest family. The wife is now your flesh and bone, which is, which is their way of saying, like as I said, your blood, more than your parents are. She is Adam's people. It's, it's remarkable to me that a covenant bond between man and wife is more fundamental, is a more fundamental relation than the natural bonds of father and son. That's what he's saying here. The natural bonds of father and son are not as fundamental a relation as the covenant bond of husband and wife. She's his family now. She is the closest bond in front of her husband. It's, it's a thing um, I know you guys know this. It's a thing now to declare um, my wife is my best friend. And we, we so overplay the language, my best friend. This person's my BFF, and this person's my BFF. I see it on social media all the time. Everybody has like 100 BFFs. They all last for about a week. So then inside of two years, you've got, you know, you've run through all the possible BFFs in your circle. It, And it's fine to say my wife is my best friend in one sense. Um, But the way we throw around the language best friend, um, now, I don't know that saying your spouse is your best friend is really saying enough. It's really saying enough. I I have best friends. Several of the elders are my best friends. Um, My wife is far more than that. Teresa's far more than my best friend. She's my flesh and bone, my blood, my complement, my helper, my glory. She comes before all other relational priorities. I don't have competing best friends with her. right? I am my beloved's and she is mine. We, We belong to each other by covenantal bond. And they have this marriage covenant, Adam and Eve do, in the purest sense. There's no sin between them. Thus they're naked and unashamed. Derek Kidner explains this idea... I think quite well, and you can imagine this in the context of the marriage covenant with no sin. There is, in God's true pattern, perfect ease between them. There's there's no tension. But it is the fruit of perfect love, which has no alloy of greed, distrust, or dishonor. Adam needs this woman. He needs his wife. He cannot fulfill his purpose without her. Um, that's why the marriage of Adam and Eve is the climax of the whole creation account. Now, now, I said at the beginning that the marriage of the man and the woman is tied to the mystery of the gospel. And so that really leads to the second major point we want to look at today, which is how marriage mysteriously reveals the gospel. So look at Genesis 2.24 again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is, a, this is clearly a text about the marriage covenant. We know that because Jesus says that. And, um, and we'll just go ahead and take Jesus as our authority whenever he's interpreting the Bible. We'll just assume he's getting it right. So let's look at Matthew 19 and hear what the Lord has to say about his own word. Um, Genesis 19 and verse 4. Jesus is being asked by the Pharisees, about divorce and whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And he answers that, and we'll look in Matthew 19 and verse 4 at his answer. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no, no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God has brought the man and the woman together in a marriage covenant. That's what's, I think, a reference to Malachi 2:15: that the Spirit is present uniting the two in their covenantal bond. The question is: how does this marriage covenant mysteriously reveal the gospel? Well, well, to see that, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. In, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul's actually um, going through a series of relationships. He actually says, and um, he's, he's talking about how to live the Christian life, essentially, in chapter 4 and 5. And at the end, at verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But, but actually, grammatically, it's submitting one to another out of reverence for christ not mutual submission some people pick that notion up here it has nothing to do with mutual submission it's submitting one to another in other words one party submitting to another party so wives submit to your husbands children submit to your parents slaves submit to your masters that's what he's getting at there and so he's walking through those relational dynamics you do that out of reverence for christ And he gives the wives the command to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then he goes on and tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And in the context of that, in verse 31, he says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a citation of Genesis Genesis 2.24. Exactly. He's just citing that. And then he says this, verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, what do we mean by a mystery? We don't mean that something is unsolved, like it's a mystery. There's some unsolved mystery. That's not what we're talking about. When we use the word mystery in the Bible, it's coming from Daniel, namely Daniel chapter 2. The Greek word mysterion is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, only in the book of Daniel. So when mis- mysteries picked up in Matthew 13, like the, the mysteries um, the, or of the, the parables of the mystery of the kingdom, um, or when it's picked up in Ephesians 1 about the mystery of Christ as, as being the one who is the cosmic Christ who unites heaven and earth in himself, or in Ephesians 3 when Paul says that I, I preach the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, now in Ephesians 5 it's been picked up in the same way, and the, the word mystery there means something that's partially revealed in the Old Testament and now is fully being revealed uh, in the New. was so partially revealed in the Old Testament. You have some glimpse of it there. You're getting some notion of it there, but you have, you don't have the full picture yet. And so now in the New, you're getting the full picture. And what Paul is saying is fascinating because he's telling you that Genesis 2.24 is a partial revelation of Christ and the church. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The marriage covenant between Adam and his wife is a partial revelation of the gospel of Jesus and his church. So where is it revealed partially in the Old Testament now fully? Uh, Obviously in Genesis 2.24, Paul is telling us, Um, But but where else do we see the marriage covenant picturing the relationship between Christ and his church? Uh, The first thing that you might want to note is that the language um, that is used by Moses in Genesis 2.24 for leaving and cleaving in that covenantal context is also used in the uh, Mosaic covenant with regard to God and Israel. As Israel is told to cleave to the Lord in Deuteronomy 10.20. So in Deuteronomy 10.20, Israel is told, cleave to the Lord. Same language as in Genesis 2.24. Also, in Deuteronomy 29.25, Israel's um found to be a bride who forsakes the Lord or leaves her covenant Lord in Deuteronomy 29.25. So leaving and cleaving is used um, not only for the marriage covenant in um, the Pentateuch, or the first five books, but leaving and cleaving is used for the covenant between um, God and Israel. Same kind of language. Further, marriage is used throughout scripture as an example of the Lord's covenant with his people. In Jeremiah, um, chapter 2, as Israel is coming out of Egypt, Jeremiah prophesies or, or tells them about Israel about their coming out of Egypt and compares Israel to God's bride. You are my young wife, who I brought you out in Genesis 2. In Genesis 31, 31 and following in the New Covenant context, he says that. Um, You broke my covenant, the one I made with you when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Um, Though I was your husband, declares the Lord, you broke my covenant. In Isaiah 5, God refers to Israel as his bride. Um, In Hosea, he refers to Israel as his bride who whores around on him, who commits spiritual adultery, so that adultery between a husband and wife is compared to adultery between God and and his people. Further, Israel sins against the Lord's covenant. Israel sins against the Lord's covenant uh, with her, uh, particularly when she runs after idols, and is called um, a spiritual whore in Ezekiel. That's probably the most interesting passage. So I want to look there. Hold, keep your hand in Ephesians five, and look at Ezekiel chapter sixteen quickly, real, really quickly here. Ezekiel chapter sixteen. I want you to see this language as the Lord brings her out and makes a covenant with Israel. And I want you to hear the language in verse 8. Uh, when I passed by you again and saw you, that's the Lord, behold, you are at the age for love. that Israel's is now at the age to marry, to make a covenant with her. You're at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. Um, we see that language also in Ruth, incidentally. And covered your nakedness, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You are my wife now. Now notice what it says. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. So he washes her with clean water. Now look back at Ephesians chapter 5 and note the language there since we're looking at verse 31 and 32 Note the language here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Picking up that same kind of covenant of marriage language. The great mystery in Ephesians 5.32 is that Genesis 2.24 is revealing to you a type of Christ in his church. Now, we're not the first Christians to read Paul this way. Listen, listen to what Augustine said. Even in the beginning, when woman was made from a rib in the side of the sleeping man, that had no less a purpose than to symbolize prophetically the union of Christ and his church. Adam's sleep was a mystical foreshadowing of Christ's death. And when his dead body hanging from the cross was pierced by the lance or how about jerome who gave us the latin translation of the bible we have heard about the first adam let us come now to the second adam and see how the church is made from his side or how about john gill so it was a type of the marriage of christ the second adam between him and his church which sprung from him from his side and is of the same nature with him and was presented by his divine Father to him, who gave her to him, and he received her to himself as his spouse and bride. Listen, these folks are not making up cra- some crazy interpretation of the text; they're just following what the Bible says from beginning to end. Um, the church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament. Right? In 2 Corinthians eleven, he's going to speak of the fact. Paul's going to speak of the fact that he he betrothed the church to one bridegroom, even Christ. In Revelation 19, 6, Christ is going to return for the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 21, 21 and following, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven as a bride adorned for a husband. For a husband. Adam was put into a deep sleep, something like death his side was punctured and from his punctured side was created his bride with whom he was in covenant and for whom, of, of whom he was supposed to protect and care for and we'll look at his failure to do so in Genesis 3 the first Adam we'll see in Genesis 3 did not protect his bride in fact he allowed her to participate in sin and he participated in the sin with her They both sinned and incurred death. The second Adam sacrificed his life for his bride. He washed her clean of her sin and he protects her till the end. Protects her till the end. Look at Ephesians 5.25 again. We'll conclude with this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now listen to the purpose or result of that so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to give his life for us, for his bride, to wash us clean, Uh, of our sins by his own blood and to present us here's the thing he's not just going to leave us there to present us before himself holy and without blemish he's going to carry us all the way to the end that's what Jesus did for us that's what Adam if you will failed to do for his wife and in that we ought to rejoice and be thankful let me pray father we are thankful for Christ and what he has done for us We're thankful for the marriage covenant, the privilege that many of us enjoy. We pray that we would be faithful to that covenant, but we give thanks even more for the picture that is of Christ and his church, of his love for his church and his willingness to lay down his life for his church and to protect his church and to carry her all the way home. May we trust him in this and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.